We're glad you're with us today. The day that the Lord has made, we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. You know, I feel like I want to just change all the message here and just go to talk about how powerful our Jesus is, huh? That's what I'd like to do, but I won't. I'll stick to what I'm going to be preaching on today. And we're continuing on today with the theme that Jesus has been developing for the last couple of chapters, several chapters in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus introduces this concept of the church. He asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter came up with the answer, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said at that time, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he's been doing that since then. Uh, He said that the centerpiece of all that I'm going to be doing until he returns is the cross, his cross, the cross of Christ, where he would die, he would take on our sins. And it's not just the cross that he occupied, but it's also the empty cross now, the cross that has proven that he was victorious over sin. Peter got it wrong when he said, Lord, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen. He had to rebuke him, had to teach his disciples that the key component in serving him is that you walk in humility, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow. He goes on to give them a glorious display of who Jesus is in the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're blown away by this declaration of this is my son and he is God. Again, the continuous theme of understanding who God is. We see then that uh, he goes on to tell us that we can know him. In fact, he expects us. Do you know who I am? And uh, he is almighty God. Do you know that I'm at work right now? That I'm doing something special? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And do you know that I deeply care for you? And he does. I have heard a number of people since I preached that particular message come up to me and say, hey, I found the gold coin. I found the gold coin. Over and over they're saying that. If you missed that message, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But then last week we talked about uh, that he wants to have, for his church family, he wants us to have a particular spirit about us, that we are to be humble. We're to capture the spirit of a child and to be teachable in a number of things that we talked about. We're to be very careful that we don't uh, cause other young believers to stumble. And then he reminded us at the very end that all of us are valuable. He comes and he looks for all of us when we go astray. Using the illustration then of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, loses one, leaves the ninety and nine and goes and finds that one sheep. And he's telling us that we are incredibly, incredibly valuable. It's in that flavor that we move to the passage of scripture that we look at today. That flavor of saying that everyone matters and that we're concerned when somebody uh, goes astray or moves in to sin. And he addresses that very keenly for us in this passion, in this passage that we have. So, um, and when you think about that, he's giving us instruction of how we should go out and look for sheep, how we should go out and look for those who would stray. So before we look at that passage, I want to just back up here a little bit and see a bigger picture of the biblical picture of how God, in his grace, defines boundaries. And in defining those boundaries, he's saying, when you operate within these boundaries, you have the abundance of life. 
When you step outside of these boundaries, you go astray and you find great difficulty. You know, it would be a very difficult thing if God just said, look, you've got to live right and didn't define what living right looked like. But he's defined it for us. And in fact, uh, if we look at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, a glorious creation, marvelous, marvelous creation. And God and Adam and Eve were working together. But he did say this. He said, look, all of this is yours to enjoy. However, and establishing the definition of his sovereignty there, if you eat of this tree, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. And so there were the parameters that said, this is where life is, and this is where you have to be very, very careful. And of course, mankind rebelled against those standards and moved into consequences and chaos. I love the fact that Jesus establishes then his heart, because even as he comes looking for them in the garden, asking them questions, he makes a very clear proclamation to them. He said, look, I'm going to send a Savior, and he's going to redeem you. In other words, he's saying, you've gone astray now, but I'm coming. I'm looking for you, and I'll draw you back in to myself. There's another place in Scripture that he defines the boundaries for us. There's many, many places, but one that stands out in mind is the giving of the Ten Commandments. As one man has said, they're not the suggestions, they're actually commandments, things that he expects us to to do, things that he wants and desires us to do. In Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is simply uh, the second giving of the law, uh, that's what that title means, and Moses is rehearsing for us what God has said to him that he was to say to the people of how they were to live, how they should conduct themselves. And it's interesting that when uh, Moses is summarizing that, in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, we, we read clearly what he's saying here in regards to uh, what he's asking of the people. It says in Deuteronomy 30, beginning at verse uh, 15, he says, See, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days on the land which you have crossed the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life, Moses says. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. So what he's done here, he has clearly defined the way of blessing. He, the, the law was not given to prohibit life. It was actually given to establish a realm of security that if you operate within this realm, it will be good. You'll be blessed. 
Now, he also has done that in a different way, many ways, by the way, in the Old Testament. There are other ways that we see the boundaries that are established. We also see that there are many ways that God sought after his people when they were disobedient, sending prophet after prophet, telling them, you're going the wrong way. Come back, come back, come back, and, uh, and rebuking them as any good father would. In the New Testament, we see also clearly defined areas that tell us that if we uh, if we move into these areas, it will result in our death. And in fact, I read some of those. If you look with me to Romans chapter 1, and this is the summary that is given to us. In Romans 1, having talked about the disobedience of man, he goes on to define about these areas. These would be the areas that our brothers and sisters, that we ourselves could fall into, and if we did we should go as loving brothers and sisters to seek to rescue them because they have violated the boundaries of God and they are in danger. But listen to some of these. I won't read them all, but he certainly tells us that he's given them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. That's verse 28 of Romans 1. Being filled with, and here's the description, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of evil, envy, Murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's like reading the newspaper, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't it really is? It's just telling us. So what he's defined, I didn't continue the list there. What he's saying to us is that these are areas that... uh, are, uh, that lead to death, that lead to separation from God that will cause you to stray. He's given a list of those also in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And he talks about the last days. And I've, I've had that question asked me more often in these days than I have in a long time. Do you believe that we're living in the end times? Do you believe it's close to the time when Jesus will come back? And I will guarantee you this. It is closer this day than it was last week. But when he comes back, just be ready. That's what we should be doing. But look here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, but realize this, verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be, now he's going to give us a list of things here, but they're carried in this context of these words here. The first part, men will be lovers of self. Then if you go down to verse 4, the latter part, rather than lovers of God. So when I become, begin loving myself, I move in that pattern of straying into the area of danger, and it's characterized by uh, loves, a love of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He gives us this list again. Now, why does he give that list? Because he wants to define for us where the areas of danger really rest. In Galatians 5 will be the last one I look at. These are three good categories or three good passages that assist us in understanding where people, our brothers and sisters, can go astray. In Galatians chapter 5, he defines for us, talking about the contrast of the spirit and the flesh, And then he outlines for us some of these characteristics of the flesh. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. 
which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts. And then he goes on with the list here. Here's what's happened then. Our loving Father defines the boundaries for us for holy, healthy living. Don't violate these boundaries. Don't move into these because you're going to get into trouble. It's not going to bring peace. It's not going to bring a sense of joy or life. Avoid these areas. Now, I say to you that God has done for us, in fact, what any good parent would do. And God is a different parent in the sense that he is all-knowing. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning. He knows the end. He knows everything in between. It would make sense to us as children of God to uh, listen to God as he defines where to live and how to live. Wisdom demands that we follow his way, the abundant life. You know, when I was a kid growing up, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think I was an easy kid to, um, to train up. I was always living on the edge. But what my parents did is that they set the rules, and they enforced them because they loved me, and they desired that I would grow up and finally learn what life is all about. God has done that for us. In fact, any good parent must establish clearly defined rules. They must let those rules be driven by love. They must be reasonable rules, things that we can do, and they should be consistently enforced with consequences. I want to run those by you again. Any good parent, you, you uh, that have young children at home now, any good parent is going to clearly define, this, these are the rules of the house. This is how we live. This is how we operate. And I want you to know I'm giving these to you in love because I, I want you to grow up to be responsible. And, and it's, by the way, it is reasonable that you can do these things. And if you don't, there will be consequences. This is a wise way for children to be brought up. Now, I want to say to you, just as it was with children who disobeyed the rules of God, chaos set in. And I would say to you that if we fail as parents to establish rules and guidelines that are reasonable, lovingly enforced with consequences, if we cease to do that, and, and I believe that we're living in a time such as this, that there are kids that are irresponsible, that don't seem to understand the rules and the regulations, that they're not suggestions, but they're absolutes. And I think that we as parents are not, are not often consistent in terms of enforcing the boundaries and saying, this is really what I mean, and I mean what I say. And as parents, it may be very painful for us to do that, but I'm going to say to you that if we do not enforce that, we rear in our home irresponsible self-centered children. In fact, I believe the consequences, as I looked at that this week and studied what experts have said, that uh, if we would follow these simple guidelines, we would find that we could raise children that are strong. But if we fail to follow good, sound, biblical guidelines for training children, we train up children to be narcissistic, totally absorbed with themselves, irresponsible, insecure, demanding 
and unfulfilled. Now, I really have people asking me, what do I do with this child who is this way? Well, I'm asking, do you have rules and regulation? Are you enforcing them? And so forth. So then that brings us back to our text then this morning. Uh, and and what I, why I'm saying that is, is that God is now trying to say for the church, for our family, for each other, that there are things that we should be deeply concerned about in regards to one another. And when we stray from these absolutes of God, we should seek to rescue them. Brian Mills was a retired CIA undercover uh, operations man. He, after retirement, was trying to reconnect with his adult uh, daughter, and they were enjoying that. He had been so busy with his co-op, all that was going, operations and undercover things, and she really didn't even know what he did many times. She then uh, took off on a, um, with an, a friend of hers on a, on a trip in between college and before career started, and while she was in Paris, she was abducted by um, sex trafficking people. And she, when she knew that they were breaking into her house, called her father on the phone and was talking to him. And then she was not able to talk anymore, but she kept the line open and he was able to hear. One of the abductors then realized that the phone was open and he came and picked it up and spoke to the person on there. And uh, Brian Mills said, look, I have no money to give for any ransom. But I want you to know something. I have learned things as a CIA undercover agent that you have not even imagined, that you do not want to know about. But I want you to know this clearly. I'm coming for my daughter, and I will rescue her. She's in danger. Now, if you probably, some of you, I see you nodding to each other, said, that's from the movie Taken. That is the movie Taken. And I love it. I love it because I love the spirit of the father that says, don't mess with my family. And he goes after them. And, and I love it at the end. He rescues this girl right before she's sold into slavery. He rescues her and, and she embraces her dad like, I knew you'd be here. I knew you would be here. And, and then at the end, they're back in the United States and there's laughter and there's joy. Now, this doesn't fully fit in the context of what we're saying, except in this way. Because she didn't volitionally go into this great area of danger. She was taken into that. But it does capture the spirit of what we ought to have in relationship to one another. Jesus is saying that if a sheep strays, we as a family, church family, ought to be concerned about that. Not in a self-righteous, punitive way, but in a deep, broken way that somebody in our family is missing. Any good parent would have that spirit. So it's within that that Jesus is saying, can I give you some guidelines of how you ought to conduct yourself in seeking those sheep that have gone astray? Let's read the passage first of all. It's Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20. Now remember, it's just come off the illustration as Matthew is putting together the account of the life of Jesus. It's just come off the illustration 
of the sheep that went astray. And then he says, immediately here, if your brother sins, some later manuscripts have in there, if your brother sins against you, so it is something that's personal, but if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So here we develop the theme then, having already established that there are biblical, clear biblical guidelines of God establishing boundaries, enforcing them, and, and also rescuing us in that very process. So the theme that we want to develop this morning, we do it very quickly here, if we truly love someone, if we truly love someone, we will help them when they fall into sin or difficulty. I know that these verses that we're looking at here have uh, been treated harshly by some, and they've treated it in a, an authoritarian fashion. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't give authority, but it's been with an attitude of like authoritarianism, a militant way. And instead of having a broken heart in terms of this and seeking out those who have gone astray with deep compassion and care, this has been used wrongly. And so for this reason, some people cringe when we do that part of tell it to the church. I'll come back to that in a moment. First of all, I just want to define why it is important to confront sin in the family or in the fellowship or in the church. What good does that do? I see four things that help us in terms of addressing matters of sin. Number one, it reminds us that God is a righteous God. It reaffirms the standard of righteousness. It's there. Uh, That means that uh, it's not just do as you please, as you feel, but God has established. So when we see somebody sinning, it draws us back to say, hey, wait a minute. That's not like God. That's not what he does. That's not who he is. And we get to say, oh, no, this is who God is. We need to be reminded often about his righteous standards. Secondly, I believe that when we uh, practice this type of thing, it reminds the church of God's righteous standard. When we come together, we think, oh, God really does have a defined way. And I know in my family growing up that, uh, and there were five of us siblings there, when uh, one of the siblings got corrected or was in trouble, uh, when we heard about that, all of the rest of us straightened up. You ever do that? Man, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be that way. So there's a beauty in saying, don't forget as, as unstable as the world is out there in terms of defining truth and righteousness, please understand, church, God has a standard, and he expects us to keep that. 
Another thing that it does is that it helps us to understand not only what that truth is, but it reveals to the world that there's a different standard. The church is designed by God to be a peculiar people. We're to be different. And we ought to be because God has taken us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from unrighteousness to righteousness. We should live differently. There ought to be a distinction in our lives in that fashion. It's not how close can I get to the world and still be a Christian. It's how close can I get to God to manifest his greatness. So when we declare, and I know that this, is, this sometimes has shockingly impacted the world, at least the world around me, in the sense that I've gotten rebuked for that. But what we've done is we've said, no, no, world, you're going to stray out there. You don't know what the truth is. And we're declaring that to you. And I think the last thing that telling, uh, that dealing with sin, it gives an opportunity to restore people to fellowship. I love that. I love the fact that we have seen, uh, I know in, in your own family you've witnessed that, in the church. And when I see the, the story of the, the prodigal son and the, the father, and I see the rejoicing of that son who comes back, the party that they have, the joy that they have that he's come back. So we should be addressing the issue of sin with one another for these reasons. There's more that I'll share in a moment, but go on here. The second question, and I have five questions that I ask here about this text. The first question being, why is it important to confront sin in the church? Two, Are there any biblical examples of church fellowships standing up for righteousness and doing this very thing? Kind of, isn't this a little old-fashioned, Mike? We don't do that anymore. Let let people live, live and let live. And, uh, and And what gives you the right to move in? Well, there are biblical examples. I see at least five, and I'll go these very quickly and give you a reference. For example, in the church of Corinth, there was the issue expressed to us in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians of the violation of God's moral commandments. And the church had to address it. In fact, Paul rebuked them for not addressing it correctly. Secondly, we see unresolved relationships, sins such as gossip and slander and abusive speech. That when Paul writes the church of Ephesus, he has to give correction in regards to that. Another example, this is not how the church should conduct itself. Divisiveness in the church is addressed in the church of Rome. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. There's another example of false teaching on major doctrine. Galatians 1, the church of Galatia, had to be addressed there because they were departing from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we see another illustration of this, of disorderly conduct and refusal to work. You mean you talk to people because they don't work? Yes, if you don't work, you don't eat, Paul says to Timothy. But this was particularly addressed, concerned about false doctrine that was in the church of Thessalonica. So when you ask, does the church ever practice such a thing? The answer to that is yes. There are biblical examples in relationship to that. But this this next question, the third question that I ask here, is probably the most crucial of all that we ask. What personal preparation should one take before approaching a sinning family member? 
Is there, is there a protocol on this? Is there something I should do? And the answer to that is, of course. It's given to us in two passages of Scripture. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, if a man be overtaken in a fault, that means he moves into sin, he strays, he's failing in some way. If a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That tells me there are several things that I need to be doing in preparing to go see a brother or a sister in regards to sin. First of all, I should understand that they tripped into that, that we should have the understanding that, that, that if they should stumble into sin, that maybe they don't even understand how difficult that could be. And I want to be cautious how I approach. I don't want to be arrogant and judgmental. I want to consider myself because I could do that. I'm capable of that. It's not arrogant. I, you know, I hear people saying, well, I guarantee you, I would never do that. And this, that's the first step. Paul says, when a man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's by God's grace and God's spirit that we're not able to do that. And then he says, uh, in the spirit of meekness or gentleness, it's not an arrogant spirit, it's brokenness. I'm deeply concerned about you. I'm here because I, and I'm pursuing you. I'm going to you. And here it says, even if you've offended me, you would think that the person who did the offending should come, but I have been offended, but I'm coming to you because brother, I, or sister, I want you to know that what you're doing is dangerous and it could lead even to greater danger. Would you come on back? Would you come on back? But there's also another passage of Scripture, and it's Matthew chapter 7, which Pastor Aaron taught on. And it's talking about, and everybody loves that part there. He says, judge not, lest ye be judged. The only thing they quote is judge not. And really what it's saying is, and if it says judge not, why would he give us instruction on how to do it? Does that make sense to you? He says, you know, he says, no, judge not, lest you be judged. In other words, you be willing to live by the same standard, much like Galatians 6.1 was saying that you're under that same code of conduct. So so he says, uh, uh, if you see then a a two before that is in your brother's eye, no, if you see a, I'll get it right here. If you see a a splinter or a, a small thing in your brother's eye, first get the two before out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to get the splinter out of your brother's eye. So there's a prerequisite. That means that my life ought to be pure and it ought to be, uh, I ought to have clear vision. I ought to know exactly what I'm doing here. I think many times, and I I think it's very interesting that he's using the illustration of an eye because, uh, and I've told you about this before, if I was actually going to a medical doctor and he told me that my I needed to have surgery on it. And while he was explaining it to me, his hand was shaking. And, and he said, you know, you, 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 you need to have surgery done on your eye. I would say, Doc, can I get a second opinion here? Because I'm not sure I want you <laughs> operating on my, 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 my eye, <laughs> you know, because you could permanently damage my eyesight. Do you understand that when we approach each other, please grasp this, my brothers and sisters. Do you realize that when you go into somebody's life to address a failure, 
a, a, a falling away in some way, and you haven't properly prepared yourself, you could exacerbate the situation. You could cause greater pain. You could cause them to turn even more away from God. And he says, so first, get that two before out of your own eyes so that you can see clearly to do the surgery. And I would say to you that if you can't do that, stay away from those people that may need help. You're not prepared to help them. So what is the proper, uh, what personal preparation should I take when I come and I want to talk to you about sin? Is I want to ask you, I said, how's your life going? How's your walk with God going? Are you finding there's areas of struggle that's happening? And my brothers or my sister, if I could just say, I'm observing something here. It may or may not be true. There may be something I'm missing here. But it seems to me that what you're doing right here doesn't look like Jesus. And my heart is broken because I have remembered in the past where you look like Jesus. You walk like Jesus. You talk like him. I miss that so much. Help me understand here, brother. See, that's the spirit that he's speaking of here. Not authoritarian. It's not judgmental. It's with brokenness and deep concern. Two more questions, okay? Question number four. What is the proper way to approach a family member who is engaged in sin? Well, I'll tell you what you shouldn't do. (laughs) You shouldn't go and say to so-and-so, hey, so-and-so, do you see what so-and-so is doing here? Well, what is wrong with them? That doesn't, what, what, we better, you know, and then talk to others. That's not what he says at all. He says, first, go to him privately and directly. Do you know how many problems could be solved if we just keep matters in a smaller circle? Instead of slandering or gossiping or speaking out against, I mean, that, He said, go directly to them. You know, I want you to know that in my life, there have been those people that have come to me and they said, Mike, uh, what about this area of your life? I said, oh, thank you, my sister. Thank you, my brother. If if this is what it looks like here, then I, I want to avoid the appearance of evil. Thank you. Thank you for loving me this way. You see, when we do it right directly and privately, it has the fruit of being kept to a small circle and it's finished. I cannot tell you the number of conversations which I had with people where I've spoken to them directly. And my last words to them is when I left that, I said, be assured of this, I will never ever address this issue with anyone. It's really kind of interesting. I just cleaned out my office downtown this week. For the first time in 45 years, I have no office. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's really, I, in fact, I feel very insecure, out of place, and confused. No, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. You know, this is just that great transition that we're going through. But in that process of clearing out, I literally had file after file, and I read some of those, of people that I have personally written letters to or spoken to or we have as a church and we've seen the fruit of, and those are all gone. I, I, those, are, those are destroyed. Why? Now, I kept them just because there needed to be verification, but they're gone. 
There's no need for that. Go directly to them. Now, it could be that they don't listen, and that simply means, number two, get some help. That doesn't mean help so that you can corner the guy more, more effectively. That means that this didn't go well. It didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. It didn't bear the fruit I thought it was going to bear. So I need somebody to come along and help me. And, and it's not just help me condemn the person. It's help me. Maybe I approached this wrong. Maybe I asked the wrong questions. Maybe I didn't have the right spirit. I just need somebody to bear witness. And the scriptures speak of that. And we haven't time to develop that, but we see that. I need some because, listen now, listen. The strange sheep is still strained. I didn't do it well the first time, but I'm not giving up. I'm going to find that brother or sister, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to say, hey, listen, I don't, I don't know what went wrong the last time, but can we go at it again? And I brought so-and-so with me just so they can bear witness to what's going on here. Well, if that doesn't work, then you need more help. He says, go to the church. Now, you go to the church not to gossip. You go to the church not to publicly humiliate, socially embarrass. That's not your purpose of going. You're saying this, I personally went. I took others with me. It's not working. Help me. Help me in the spirit of getting my brother or sister back. Will you join me in prayer? Will you labor before God? We've got to get this brother or sister back. And then, if that doesn't work, you think, wow, I went personally, I've taken others, the church is praying, they're concerned, and this person's not responding. Is it possible they don't even know the Lord? What I need to do is now share the gospel with them. doesn't mean that I cut them off and have no further contact with them, it means that the contact that I have with them is in the spirit of sharing the gospel so that they may come to a redemptive understanding of the Lord. Because the evidence is that they're not repentant, so they may not even have the spirit of God within them. He gives a very clear definition of how it's to be approached. And it also told us the right spirit in which we go. My last question is, is this something we're doing alone? Is God also concerned about care for family members caught up in sin. Well, we've already seen it in the illustration of the lost sheep, but we also see it in this portion right here. This is the second time that he's quoting this very reference. In, in uh, Matthew 16, when he said, I'm going to build my church, he talks about loosing and binding. What he, what he means by that is that when we go and care for sheep, God is with us. He's working with us in this process. It's not alone. What you bind on earth, I bind in heaven. What you loose on earth, I loose in heaven. And when you go in my name where two or three are gathered, I'm there with you. So I see three things that are there. God is working with us to bind and loose. We are not our own authority. We go in, he says, and whatever in my name. Notice verse 20, he says, for two or three are gathered together in my name. It's not independent Bible church's name. It's not Mike Jones's name. I'm coming here now in the authority of God. God is the one that's concerned about you. As we are. But no one more than God. And then I love what he says. 
I'm there in the midst. God's right there with us in the process. So I had a friend that I worked with when I was in the mines named Brian. I've told you this story before, I think, and Brian was an interesting guy. He he was always um, always talking about his brother. He said, he's talking about it, and he said these words, my brother's no count. I said, what? My brother's no count. And then one weekend after we had worked, I came back, and it was obvious that Brian had been in a fight. I said, Brian, what in the world happened to you? You know, I got in a fight with some people. This fight, yeah. I said, looks like it. Why? He said, well, they called my brother a no count. I said, Brian, the same brother that you call a no count? That's right. He said, but listen to this. You don't mess with my family. Don't you love that? He listened to the enemy that leads us into sin. Or even we walk in, are we that concerned about our family? That we go on a rescue mission? What a holy God we serve. Amen. And we are instructed to be holy even as he is holy. We're to do that same thing. We're to encourage our brothers and sisters. Do you realize that there are a hundred times in 94 verses in the New Testament, the word one another is used? Isn't that amazing? One another. That means that it's not just me and we're together. One another. One third of those deal with the unity of the body of Christ. Another third deals with the love that we should have. 15% deal with humility. But it does say that we're family. We're concerned. Our family is increasing this week. Our new pastor is coming here, a pastor of worship. Michelle will be here with us. This is your last opportunity to sign a certificate back there and also to give cards to welcome him. So uh, we want to make sure that we do that. This week, um, two things that I'm saying to you. Number one, if somebody approaches something in your life, receive that with a spirit of gentleness and love and humility as from God. Or if you go to someone because of something you see in their life, do so in the spirit of humility and gentleness that you might give them that that draws them back into the Lord. This week may be a week that is our last week. We don't know. Let us do so for the glory of God, all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.